This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg, reporting from Tallahassee, where we've set another record for COVID-19 fatalities in a single day. The state health department reports another 132 deaths from COVID-19. That is the most in Florida since the pandemic began. Total number of fatalities so far, 4,514. Governor Ron DeSantis puts it this way. People are, are, are apprehensive. People are hurting. Uh, this virus has affected every Floridian's life in one way or another. The state also reported almost 9,200 newly confirmed cases of coronavirus Tuesday. That drives the total to almost 292,000, and we're likely to break the 300,000 mark today. Florida is now the epicenter of the COVID crisis in America, and Miami-Dade is the epicenter for Florida. Maybe that's why the governor never removed his mask during a two-hour roundtable with South Florida mayors, who told him the outlook is uncertain. There is a significant amount of pressure right now for us to shut down at some level. And I think we are sort of at a critical juncture. If things do not improve uh, over the next week or two, I think we're going to be under significant amount of pressure to do something like that. Even in my own community, the amount of people who don't think they need to do something is enormous. We have to create a greater sense of urgency. As local school boards try to figure out how to reopen classrooms in the middle of a pandemic, the chancellor of Florida's public school system says most parents want their kids back in school. What they're finding is about 85 percent of the parents are saying we're, we're ready to send our children back. A Tallahassee appeals court hears arguments over a state law that says local officials who vote to impose new restrictions on guns can be fined thousands of dollars and removed from office by the governor. The Florida Supreme Court wants another hit of medical marijuana. They've scheduled a new hearing on a challenge to the state law implementing the medical marijuana amendment approved by voters four years ago, even though they just held a hearing in May. You know, that does sound like something a stoner would do. On the Sunrise interview, Jacob Ogles of Florida Politics has a preview of the fight for the state Senate seat in District 27. We'll also have your political calendar of events and check in with a Florida woman who came up with a special hiding place for a crack pipe. Let's just hope it wasn't too hot when she hit it. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, July 15th. The governor travels to the epicenter of Florida's COVID outbreak in Miami-Dade. It was, in fact, the first time he wore a mask throughout an entire press conference. Ron DeSantis wanted to hear from the mayors who are coping with an unprecedented surge in coronavirus. You know, Dade uh, right now is, is the place where we're seeing uh, the most spread and then obviously the most clinical consequences. And so uh, we have a situation now where, uh, you know, you know, people are, are, are apprehensive, people are hurting. Uh, this virus has affected every Floridian's life in one way or another. Obviously, most haven't been affected. Many may not even know anyone who's been infected. Uh, but certainly the response and everything that's happened since March has had a profound impact on everyone's way of life, particularly here uh, in Dade County. Uh, but I know people uh, in South Florida are very resilient. Uh, I think we have um, the, the strongest uh, healthcare workforce uh, in, in, the, in the state, in the country. I think they've performed very well. I think our hospital system has performed very well. Uh, the outcomes for our patients in Florida have been better uh, than, than in many other states, which I think is a testament to their hard work. Uh, I think the important thing is, is you know, we've got to all work together, all be on the same page. We have good support uh, at the federal level. And obviously the state, uh, you know, needs to be here uh, working hand in hand. Uh, you know, we've worked very closely with many of you throughout this. Uh, we want to continue to do that. But I think everyone being united right now and saying, okay, what do we need to do to 
to turn the tide uh, with the coronavirus. Obviously, there's a whole host of other issues that, that flow from that in terms of the economy, schools, all these things that I know people are apprehensive about. Um, and so, so you guys, the mayors, uh, really are the ones that are going to make it happen. Miami-Dade trails the rest of the state and is still in phase one of the recovery. And Miami Mayor Francis Suarez says things are so bad now they could be forced into lockdown all over again. You know, there is a significant amount of pressure right now for us to shut down in, at some level. And I think we are sort of at a critical juncture that if things do not improve um, quickly uh, over the next week or two, um, I, I think we're going to be under significant amount of pressure to do something like that. So I, I do think it's important and imperative that we all continue to speak with one voice. I'm also very thankful, and it's something that we discussed that you emphasized yesterday, that being here in Miami, Miami-Dade County, you should be wearing a mask if you're a resident of this community. And, and uh, I think that's something that, you know, you speak to a segment of our population directly. And I think the fact that you're saying that is something that's imperative and important for them to hear. Masks are now mandatory in Miami-Dade, but Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gelber says people tend to ignore the rule. He says they're not taking it seriously because some politicians are doing their best to downplay the danger and sugarcoat the news. It's been incredibly troubling to me that even in my own community, the amount of people who don't think they need to do something is enormous. We have to create a greater sense of urgency um, and not just sort of telling people, not just urging them, but creating urgency. And I think a lot of that, you know, I watch messages from all over the place where people are saying, well, you know, if you look at it this way, it's not, it, or last week, even the vice president talked about, you know, we're in a really good place or in a good place in Florida. And when, and when people hear that, I think people will follow a path of least resistance. Some people will. And they'll say, well, you know what? I don't think I need to wear a mask because so-and-so says I don't have to, or I don't need to do this because I've seen that, uh, you know, uh, one of my leaders is saying I don't have to. So I don't think it's just about urging. My wife urges me to exercise more and and watch what I eat. And she's failing uh, in both those regards. I think we need a sense of urgency in our community right now, a true sense of urgency. And I think it really has to come from from the president, from the governor. We're trying our best, but people will, will, uh, will follow uh, the messages they hear from the people that they um, that they believe and they and they and respect and and I think they have to know that. I mean, I know we've we've had disagreements about whether we have a, a state mandate for a mask. The only reason I've thought it's important is I think it will tell people you have to do this, not just urging you to do it, but it's urgent that you do it. But the governor has already refused to issue a mandatory mask order. So Miami-Dade Mayor Carlos Jimenez says they're counting on Floridians to be responsible. We need to be more responsible. You and I. Everybody in this room needs to be more responsible. We need to carry that message that in order for us not to take additional steps, we need to be responsible. You need to be, you need to have a social conscience, be responsible to your neighbor, uh, because if the irresponsible things that you do today will may lead to that neighbor of yours not having a job tomorrow, not being able to get a, an income tomorrow. Um, and that message needs to be driven home. We need to follow the rules. And then us as the leaders of this community, we need to enforce it. We don't want to be heavy handed, but we do need to enforce the rules that we have put in place that we all have in place right now. Not everyone was welcome at the governor's roundtable discussion. The mayor of Hialeah, the second largest city in the county, was shut out. 
Carlos Hernandez told the Miami Herald that when he tried to enter, a member of the governor's staff told him he was not invited and could not come in. Hernandez has been critical of the governor's response to the pandemic. As Florida prepares for the reopening of schools next month, the Chancellor of Florida Public Schools says there's been a big shift in parental attitude. They want their kids back in the class. Chancellor Jacob Oliva says it's a big change from surveys just a month ago. And about a third of our parents were saying, we're ready to send our kids back. They need to be in school. And we're, once those doors are open, we're going to send them. A third of the parents were pretty much saying, we're not sending our kids back until there's a treatment or a cure. We're just not comfortable in, in that environment. And about a third of the parents were unsure. They're, they're still undecided. They wanted to see where the state was. So as we're getting closer to opening in August, and August 10th is kind of a start date between August 10th and August 24th is probably when the majority of our districts are planning to reopen their doors to students. Um, there's some districts that are literally calling every parent, not just doing sample surveys, not just say, call here, tell us what you want. Principals are making personal connections with each family member. And what they're finding is about 85% of the parents are saying, we're, we're ready to send our children back. We feel comfortable. We feel like you have a good plan. You've explained it to us. We're, we're comfortable with the protocols that you put in place. Kathy Hebda is chancellor of the Florida College System, which includes 28 community or state colleges. She says they never really shut down completely because these are schools that train first responders. Our colleges are one of the main suppliers of frontline health care workers and law enforcement and uh, a number of uh, essential personnel, EMTs, paramedics, everything like that. Those programs need to keep going. They've had to make accommodations over the summer. Some have had to stop altogether for periods of time, um, especially when there are positive tests and things like that. But all those agencies, healthcare, hospitals, all those partnerships need replacements. They need additional individuals trained. They need the nurses to finish their programs. They need uh, law enforcement personnel to finish those programs and start working um, and supply vacancies. So. Uh, they've had to keep going for that. They've figured out some good ways to do it, uh, to keep everybody protected. Um, and again, they continue to respond as positive cases perhaps come up. They have deep cleaning protocols. They have uh, time for stopping out when that's necessary to keep everybody safe. Uh, but those workforce programs have to go on somehow, or we're going to lose essential personnel on our front lines. For people who support charter schools and vouchers, the COVID-19 crisis is an opportunity. Erica Donalds of Naples says the school closings and the switch to virtual learning has parents more involved than ever. And as a school choice advocate, this pandemic, the silver lining of the tragedy that has struck our nation is for me that parents are now incredibly engaged in the education that their students are learning every day. And they're getting from their district schools, from their charter schools, from their private schools. They have been forced uh, to, on a daily basis, wake up with their children and see exactly what is being offered or not offered in many cases. And now they're being asked to make a choice of what type of education is gonna be best for their child. Now, right now it's based on pandemic, it's based on the Department of Health, 
but I believe that this really changes the dynamic for many families whose eyes were never really open to the possibility of virtual learning. Uh, they really weren't talking to their friends about what kind of education their student is getting if their friend's child is going to a charter school. I saw conversations taking place about the type of delivery of instruction that parents just weren't talking about before. And so you have families now who are maybe going to be working from home a lot more now that that has become more of an option. They may have the opportunity to have their child at home doing distance learning during virtual learning. And then the state also has an opportunity here to offer different types of educational options. And this being Florida, you cannot talk about reopening schools without mentioning sports, especially football. Chancellor Oliva believes it will be back in the fall. Are there plans for sports reopening? Absolutely. From a high school level, there's the Florida High School Athletic Association, and they've put a task force together to look specifically at the calendars to see how can we conduct uh, regional and state championships. So I, I feel fairly, very confident that we're going to be able to have fall sports. Um, it seems uh, like the conversation is really around football because uh, some of the other fall sports like cross country, it's already outdoors. Golf is already outdoors. Some of the other um, activities that are in fall sports kind of tend to lend themselves better to social distancing. But when you get into football, um, direct contact sports and then big crowds of people that want to come see these sports, it's a little bit more nuanced. But uh, I feel confident that uh, the FHSA and, and their leadership will come up with a plan that's amenable to, uh, to the schools and across the state of Florida so we can continue with that connection. So relax, Florida. There will be high school football in the near future. A state appeals court in Tallahassee is pondering the legality of a Florida law that says local officials can be fined thousands of dollars and removed from office if they approve any gun laws that are tougher than existing state laws. The Florida legislature preempted local gun regulations back in 1987. More than 20 years later, the gun lobby decided preemption wasn't enough. They convinced lawmakers to add the penalty provision. Edward Geddes represented the local governments challenging those penalties, telling the First District Court of Appeal that lawmakers violated the fundamental standards of legislative immunity and separation of powers. We have absolutely no problem, Your Honor, with the legislature telling local governments that they're preempting an area of the law to them. None at all. Where we have our problem is where there's a punishment attached to it. This has never happened before in the history of Florida. Despite the legislature preempting innumerable areas of law to itself over time, this is the only time that the legislature has said, by the way, even though we're not in some kind of crisis, we're going to punish you if you violate this preemption. The right to bear arms, right, that's in, enshrined in the U.S. Constitution and it's enshrined in the Florida Constitution. Of course it's important. There are any number of other constitutional rights of equal stature in the federal and the Florida Constitution. But this is the one area on the one subject that the legislature has chosen to say, not only are we going to preempt, but at the expense of legislative immunity, at the expense of governmental function immunity, and at the expense of the separation of powers doctrine, we're going to punish you. And I would respectfully urge the court not to cross that threshold. The remedy for local legislators who go rogue 
is to vote them out of office. The state attorney general's office is defending the law, but they didn't have to work very hard. Justice Brad Thomas pretty much made their argument for them. Isn't the intent of this legislation to establish that local governments don't have the right to violate state law? And if they do, there'll be consequences. And to the extent that there may be some debate around the margins, isn't the intent of the legislation to local governments stay away from the margins? Isn't the thinking of this legislation that what's at stake here could almost be described as uh, a right under natural law, and that is the right to self-defense. And they don't want local governments interfering with that right of a citizen to bear arms, defend themselves if necessary, and to the extent there's a chilling effect, um, absolutely. I agree, Your Honor. Couldn't have said it better myself. No word when the first DCA will rule, but you can expect an appeal to the Florida Supreme Court regardless of who wins. One side note here, while Florida's attorney general is defending the law, the state's agriculture commissioner says it needs to go. Nikki Freed says Florida's firearm preemption law violates the Constitution, threatens local officials. Freed also says the governor needs to stop wasting taxpayer money on endless appeals. The Florida Supreme Court orders a second round of arguments in a battle about whether the state properly carried out John Morgan's 2016 constitutional amendment legalizing medical marijuana. A Tampa company called Floragrown is challenging the law passed by the legislature to implement that amendment, and the high court heard oral arguments back in May. But the court was apparently intrigued by a claim that the law was designed to benefit specific companies, which is barred by the state constitution. Unfortunately, that was not the focus of the first hearing, so the high court has scheduled a do-over in October, which is extremely rare. One reminder, this has nothing to do about whether medical marijuana is a good or a bad thing. This is all about which companies get to make money off the deal. Next up on the Sunrise Interview, a preview of the race for the Florida Senate seat in District 27 in Lee County, where the Republican establishment in Tallahassee is trying to call the shots. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org COVID for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Jacob Ogles, who covers the southwest corner of the state for Florida politics. On Tuesday's podcast, we got his take on the race for Congressional District 19. Today, Jacob has the skinny on the race for the District 27 seat in the Florida Senate. I think that we have a huge Senate primary down here with Heather Fitzenhagen and Ray Rodriguez that has become a hot race. And it wasn't even there until the last day of qualification, like the last few minutes of qualification. Uh, but that has become a real battle between a certain environmental wing of the Republican Party and the Republican senatorial uh, leadership, honestly. This has been a race that's not simply about Fitzenhagen and Rodriguez, but about Wilton Simpson's leadership and maybe even Pasadomo's uh, leadership after that, Kathleen Pasadomo, who's in line to be Senate president after Wilton Simpson. And this one Senate seat is so pivotal, that whole decision there? How so? Well, for one thing, early on, the Senate leadership, the uh, Florida Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, 
announced that they were going to endorse Rodriguez and that they very much wanted to avoid having a lot of Republican primaries in Senate races this year. That includes in this deep red Senate seat. Now, the interesting thing is, this ought to be just an easy Republican seat, period, and who cares who actually is upholding it. But because the Senate leadership got behind Rodriguez and really wanted to avoid a lot of tough primaries, uh, you know, they weren't prepared for Heather Tittenhagen and John Vianna when she did. They came at her with a vengeance. They put ads up attacking her record on abortion, attacking her record on immigration, really trying to sour her uh, with the conservative electorate down here. And at the same time, you've seen some some forces like Brian Nast, who's a close ally of Governor DeSantis, by the way. And I don't think people should forget that Heather Fitzenhagen was on the governor's shortlist for running me a couple of years ago. Um, I think that's been something that's gotten a lot of attention very quickly. I was just at a restaurant the other day, and in the background was uh, a TV ad blasting Ray Rodriguez as Sugar Ray uh, for being in the pocket of agriculture and being in the pocket of Big Sugar. So it's it's become a real vicious battle very quickly with a lot of negative advertising and without much time between when she jumped into the race and the Republican primary. That's also one of these Lee Collier issues. I mean, they're both Lee County candidates, but it's important to remember Heather Fitzenhagen's district is entirely within the Senate district, and Ray Rodriguez's House district is not. So she actually starts the race with some decent voter ID in Fort Myers and some of the areas that are critical to win in this seat. So even though he's got a heck of a lot more money than she does and seems to be the favorite in every quantifiable way, uh, there are some assets she brings to that race. So to the public, it, it might appear that we have well, Republican leadership trying to install their own person in this rather than letting the voters choose their own uh, representative. Is that Does that play at all, or is that just one of the inside politics things that we talk about but no one really cares about in the real world? Well, it's something the Fitzenhagen campaign is trying to paint. Um, it's hard to say how much it's going to do with voters. After all, I think voters ultimately want to have a senator in good standing with the leadership of their own party. So that may matter a lot more to voters than, than some of the things we're talking about. And yet, yeah, I do think there's some real resonating message with you don't want the people in Tallahassee deciding who your senator is. You should get to decide who your senator is. And the Fitzenhagen campaign has definitely played that up. Um, uh, you know, there's another factor that's been really surprising in this, and that's uh, – we broke the story a few weeks ago, but Gary Farmer, the Democratic leader in the Senate next year, who would become Senate president if Democrats won the majority of seats in the chamber, he tried to get the Democrat in this race, Rachel Brown, to bow out so that we would have an open primary between Fitzenhagen and Rodriguez presumably because Fitzenhagen is the more moderate choice, would do much better with Democratic and independent voters. And that's, that's been really interesting because it's fueled these rumors that if we ended up with a 2020 Senate, Fitzenhagen's vote in the Senate might be up for grabs if she's holding the seat. Now, is that really 
Fitz and Hagen's plan, or is that the GOP spin on what they think might happen? Fitz and Hagen adamantly denies that and says that she is voting for a Republican to run the Senate, and she would support Wilton Simpson to be the Senate president. Um, it's, it's just something, though, that continues to percolate, at least in the rumor world. And that's curious. You know, Marion Hammer with the NRA has sent out emails on the subject. Uh, Politico has run some pieces. Um, there's at least a lot of allegations that Gary Farmer is telling fundraisers uh, and, and donors this in private that he thinks he can get make his vote in the 2020. Something he has not said to me or to any reporter to my knowledge, by the way. But um, is, it just, is it just kind of a made-up cockamamie story by the Senate Republican leadership because they want their candidate to win? I suppose that's a possibility, but the rumor is very real, and it, it does impact a lot of political and influential voices in which people can encourage large segments of the primary electorate uh, how they should vote in an August election. You can read Jacob's latest stories on floridapolitics.com. Your calendar of events today. The State Board of Education meets in Hillsborough County at 9. The Board of Optometry meets online at 9. The State Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission meets at 9.30. The East Central Florida Regional Planning Council holds an online meeting at 10.30. And the Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 2 in the Capitol. And finally today, we check in with Florida Man's Better Half, who you might say has bottomed out. A Florida woman told St. Lucie County Sheriff's deputies she forgot all about that drug pipe they found in her butt. The 34-year-old resident of Fort Pierce was found slouched over the wheel of her car at 3 in the morning with her foot on the brake and the vehicle in drive. She was charged with DUI, taken to jail, where an x-ray showed a foreign object in her groinal area. A strip search revealed a glass pipe, and the deputy's arrest report says, quote, It came from her anus. Sounds like the perfect title for Florida Man, the movie. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.